3: I met a lot of soldiers who empathized with Bobby, almost all of them. I ran into to soldiers all the time, basically saying, been there, done that. And I predicted, and I said in the newspapers, I said, we better get ready for more Bobby Bales.
4: John Henry Brown represented Staff Sergeant Robert Bales in military court after he committed the Kandahar Massacre.
3: The soldiers I met who knew Bobby uh, spoke very highly of him, very highly. He took on becoming a role model for younger soldiers. He thought that was part of his job. I never met any enlisted man that said anything bad about Bobby Bales.
4: As a lawyer, Brown is known for working with some of society's most notorious figures including serial killer Ted Bundy. He titled his autobiography, The Devil's Defender.
3: In 2012, he took on his newest client. There were a number of times when I was with Bobby alone and Bobby would cry. And he would not cry for himself much, but mostly for what happened. But you know, none of us should be judged on the worst day of our lives. There's many other uh, aspects to our lives that mitigate the worst things that we've done. Thank God.
2: Previously, on the War Within, Bob was always on um, ready. He wanted to make sure everyone was protected. We came upon 160 pounds of explosives. I go see the guy that uh, is responsible for the VSP and I'm like, hey man, we need to go do something. He said basically, you know, this isn't your business. I hope to get out there, find guys that weren't planning IEDs, shoot them and come back.
5: So I got the knock on the door, 3 a.m. The guard at
2: the gate says that
5: somebody left the base.
2: I come back to the VSP, they got their guns drawn on me.
6: I got a call on my cell phone and it was Bob and The first thing out of his mouth was, you need to run. Something
5: really bad has happened. I said, Bales, what the fuck happened? He looked up and he said, I think I need a lawyer.
4: I'm Mike McGinnis. This is The War Within, the Robert Bales story. Staff Sergeant Robert Bales was never expected to reach this level of notoriety. His conception of himself as an all-American guy clashes with the pariah that he has become. In his extensive interviews with documentarian Paul Blowski, Bales paints a picture of an early life that was seemingly
2: as normal as anyone else's. Um, let's begin with
3: the beginning. Where, where are you from, where
1: are you
2: born, where did you grow up? Right, I uh, grew up in Norwood, Ohio. Uh, it's a suburb of Cincinnati, blue collar town. We had a General Motors plant there until 1987. Um, you know, my dad worked in a factory his whole life. My mom never worked, stayed at home mom. So brothers, sisters, you know, what, you know how, many, how many kids are in the family where, where did you joined? I have four brothers. I'm the youngest of five. So um, I was a kid that got beat up and protected. So, uh, you know, a little bit of both, you know, I think I got a lot of attention. I got to spend a lot of quality time with my dad that I think my older brothers didn't get.
4: Growing up as the baby of a family with five growing boys, finances were often spread thin.
2: We didn't have much money, you know, I think the most money my dad ever made was like $27,000, you know. Um, The one fights that I remember with my mother and father were about money. And so I think that left a real um, taste in my mouth. We were the blue-collar guys, you know, we were the, you know, you guys aren't that smart, you know, you're going to have to, you know, be more physical, you know, you're going to end up working in the factory, you know, uh, that's the lifestyle. So I think... The idea of proving people wrong, proving that you can do, and the idea that you know you want to get up. During his time as an active-duty soldier, Robert
4: Bales was known for his dedication to his craft. It's a work ethic that was developed at
2: a young age on the gridiron. I love football. You know, as a, as a kid, you know, I mean, when I was seven, I'd come home in the backyard. And I had my whole football team, a little Nerf football, out there throwing my Nerf football to my fake guys in the backyard later in high school, I was captain of the football team. In those kind of groups, there, there's some right. people that are kind of, the ones that are plotting it out and organizing, kind of the leaders, some of their followers, you know, uh, those are the dynamic, dynamic for you. I think as far as the leader, I don't think that really developed until uh, seventh and eighth grade football. I think it changed because I just had a knack for it. You know, you start doing some things and you start getting counted on, and then it carries over. I think football carries over, sports in general, carry over into life. And then it translates into everything else. So, for example, uh, you know you had to have at least a C average to play football, to play sports. And so all of a sudden you start getting a C average, and you're like, you know what? That's pretty easy. Maybe I can do a little better. I think football is a great lesson for life. you know, you take lots of hits, but you get it up and you keep going. you know you, you never stay down. You know, being a part of that community, being a part of the, the brotherhood, being a part of that fraternity, you're working with your best friends. I mean, these guys are your best friends in life. You know, you, you do everything together. The people who know Bales will attest
4: that he's a fiercely loyal person, whether it's on the football field or the battlefield. You could argue that he's always had a protective streak. Nowhere was this more apparent than with the friendship that Bob fostered with his next-door neighbor, Wade.
2: I started working with Wade when I was 14. Wade has microcephaly, which means that his brain closed too early or the soft spot in his brain closed up so his brain could not expand good-looking guy uh, you wouldn't know if he was just sitting here that he was retarded but he had he was severely retarded so you know he never got he never made it past the age of reasoning they live next door um, to me um, so I kind of grew up with him a little bit and they had a program called model 50 which was established by Nancy Reagan I believe where families could keep their children at home and get help from the outside. So, um, I, you know, basically they hired me to, to help take care of Wade. Well, Wade became, you know, attached to my hip. Wade and I did everything together, you know. We'd go out and hang out, just walk in the mall, you know. And so uh, Wade drew a crowd wherever we went, you know. He, he uh, obviously was different. It wasn't like this was a job. This is my brother. You know what I mean? Bob's commitment to his neighbor was the real deal.
4: During his freshman year of college, his first year away from home, Wade hurt himself badly. Bales ended up spending the next 12 months back in Norwood.
2: After I got out of high school, I was at uh, Mount St. Joseph in Cincinnati for a year. Well, Wade had fallen down a flight of steps, broke his hip. And so it was a lot of rehab to get him back to normal or get him back up walking. And uh, so I spent some time doing that. Bales grew up in
4: Ohio in the 80s. So did I actually, although Bales is a few years older than me, but I can tell you firsthand, it was rare for the varsity football captain to spend a lot of time with his disabled neighbor. That said, he was a young man who still had some growing up to do. His wife Carrie thinks Bob was a different person before the two of them met as adults
6: he was really popular in high school he was co-captain of the football team he was president of his senior class party but he he was kind of a jerk before he turned 30 i'm not gonna lie prior to meeting me when he was in his 20s him and his friends would go out and he would go up to a, a girl maybe a not so pretty girl and he would pretend like he was shy and giving her his number and then He would walk away, he goes, I'm really shy that you should give me a call sometime, right? And his friends would be watching this and she would open it up and it would say, call one 800 Weight watchers And so I told him, I'm like, look, if I met you before we were 30 years old, I wouldn't have liked you and you wouldn't have liked me. So
4: much of Robert Bales' childhood sounds like it could have been ripped from an 80s movie. The big working class family, the football, the friendships, the pranks there aren't many indicators that this guy would one day end up in Fort Leavenworth military prison. Compare that with some of the other infamous mass murderers in American history. Frequently, their upbringings were more complicated, sometimes rife with disturbing incidents. That's why defense attorney, John Henry Brown notes stark differences between Bales and men like Ted Bundy, another one of his former
3: clients. I never believed that, People were born evil, I never was raised that way. But when I met Ted Bundy, I changed my opinion. Uh, he was definitely a very uh, evil person. Ted was clearly a sociopath. Uh, I don't think that the term serial killer was even in our vocabulary until the 70s or the 80s when there were a lot of incidents like that. Then Ted came along, and of course, um, that label fit him pretty well. There's no way that you could compare Bobby Bales to Ted Bundy at all. Uh, Bobby is not a sociopath. We became really close. I ended up really admiring Bob
1: and liking Bob.
4: from middle America to the middle of the Afghan desert. After coming back to the VSP covered in blood, Robert Bales told Special Forces Captain Danny Fields that he needed a lawyer. That request would be honored, but first, the military had a more pressing
2: priority. So uh, afterwards, you know, it was probably like three o'clock when he flew me out of uh, Panjaway to Kandahar. And there's like some blank times here where everything kind of runs together. Um, You know, so I was in Kandahar in this, like, little box room. It was no bigger than a storage closet. Then I ended up in, like, a jail, I think, for a few hours. And then they flew me to Kuwait, put me in, like, this kennel that was inside of a tent for a while. And then I ended up here in Leavenworth, Kansas. And then uh, from there, uh, I meet John Henry Brown for the first time. Carrie Bales was responsible for recruiting star
4: attorney John Henry Brown for one of the most polarizing cases of his career.
6: It was, I think, my older sister and her husband's idea to get John Henry Bound involved because he is really good with the media. Um, He dealt with other, you know, controversial cases. I didn't know who he was prior to meeting him, right? Like, I didn't go Google him or anything like that. He was a smart person, you know, who I knew was powerful, I guess. As in, like, probably the worst situation ever. And here he was, someone that was going to, that said they would, you know, help us or at least try to help us.
3: I was contacted by uh, Bobby's family. I remember vividly driving in my car, uh, getting a call on my Bluetooth. And of course, I'd heard in the news what had happened, but they hadn't mentioned the name of any soldier involved. I just knew the uh, general publicity about some soldier. Uh, Uh, going off the deep end, basically. So I knew the tragedy of the whole thing.
6: We met with him and got him on board to help us. Surreal, very surreal.
3: Carrie was scared. Her family was scared. Two kids. This is a scary situation. The Taliban is nothing to be taken lightly. So the army whisked Carrie and her family away to a safe house on the base somewhere.
6: The military packed up our house for us and moved all of our things. Within that next week, I had to get a house on Fort Lewis without telling anybody who I was. Me and my kids definitely saw the media circus.
4: If you were watching the national news at this time, Robert Bales' name and background was hard to avoid.
7: His name has not been officially released by the military, but a military source now confirms the suspect is Staff Sergeant Robert Bales. Obviously, it's easier now to look at his record and all of that. He was a first platoon sergeant there in Afghanistan, did a lot of work with the tribal elders there.
4: Watching the story play out in the public arena, John Henry Brown only became more convinced that he was doing the right thing. Picking up the phone for a defendant like Bales at a moment when most other people might have hung
3: up. I believe the only reason to be a lawyer is to help people. I guess I've always been an advocate for the underdog, and it just seemed fundamentally unfair to me that someone who we created and had four deployments should be treated the way he was being treated. Brown sought to put the staff sergeant's strongest advocates front and center.
4: But in March of 2012, the list of people willing to openly side with an alleged war criminal was short. Brown himself was one. Carey was another.
6: I felt it really important for me to show the human side of Bob and that Bob is not what has been portrayed of him. And I remember thinking that I really liked Matt Lauer and that he would be a good listener to my story.
8: You've spoken to him twice on the phone. Did you say, sweetheart, did you do this?
6: No. No.
8: I mean, as a spouse, wouldn't you want to ask that question quickly? Honey, why are they saying these things about you?
6: Not on a monitored phone call. It was surreal. It was like... This isn't happening to me. This is like you watch it on TV. This kind of story, this kind of thing happens to someone else. But here I am living this, and it was frightening and not the way you want to be in the media. It just drives me crazy that everybody wants to think the absolute possible worst, and it's not their family being drugged through the mud.
4: Painful as it might have been, Carrie went on national TV for one clear reason who literally saved
3: Robert Bales' life. The Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta, actually called for a death penalty sentence, which is, first of all, undue command influence and should not have been said. And I think that was one of the reasons why I ended up representing Bodebees, because Leon Panetta, well, here's somebody who's kind of known internationally as a humanitarian, you know, asking for the death penalty. And uh, to me, that's inconsistent whatever happened, you know, we, as the nation, created Bobby, and we were quickly abandoning him. Secretary
4: Panetta declined our interview request. So the veracity of his claim that Panetta asked for the death penalty is unclear. But he did take immediate action after the Kandahar massacre, giving a press conference just hours after the news had broken
9: traveling overseas, Defense Secretary Leon Panetta himself said the death penalty is a possibility. Obviously,
2: uh, we were all uh, deeply shocked and saddened by the event that uh, occurred there.
4: On the afternoon of March 15th, 2012, four-star General John Allen gave a press conference on the Kandahar killings. Allen worked closely with Panetta and was responsible for managing the war effort in Afghanistan. His comments reveal a lot about how the U.S. would be regarding Robert Bales.
8: In the case of Staff Sergeant Bales, uh, my sincere condolences to the loved ones, family members, and friends of those who were killed and injured in that senseless act of violence. Charges, as you know, have been preferred against Staff Sergeant Bales. Compensation payments to the families of the victims have been paid and both the criminal investigation as well as an administrative investigation continues.
9: Something went terribly wrong. Investigation pending. Mm -hmm. Something went terribly wrong. How are you making sure something like that doesn't happen again?
8: We're investigating this one very thoroughly. And I'm looking at command climate of that unit, in fact. Let's go back to the village stability platform
4: the morning of March 11th, 2012, hours after the shitstorm began. Brown might have said that the military was abandoning Bales, but that's in retrospect. In the heat of the moment, soldiers like Captain Fields and Private Alexander were left to deal with a volatile situation that Bales created.
5: Just having him on the base after we kind of pieced together what we thought that he had done, uh, it was a very uncomfortable feeling to have that person near you we said hey make sure we're watching this guy and let's let him pack a bag because he's going to have to get out of here i don't remember you know exactly how long it was that he was there but it could have been more than a few hours you know i remember they landed he got right on the plane and took off so he was gone pretty quickly
4: in the region of Panjway, the news of the american military breaking into civilian households and killing women and children was spreading fast
5: at first light, sun came up, there were people at our gate. And, you know, they said, we want to speak to who's in charge. We've, we see footprints that have left your base and are at the place where people were shot and killed. We have the bodies. We're going to bring them to you in the back of a pickup truck because we want you to see them, that we're not lying to you.
9: And our front gate is not a gate. It's a piece of wood with constantina wire wrapped around it's not like some steel fortress thing that you think it would be, right? Like in the movies. Yeah, it's
4: not it's not any type of defensive barrier at all.
9: The Afghans were not there to inflict damage. What they were there to do is get bails. They wanted instant retribution for what happened and they
5: wanted to show us the evidence of what had happened. These people came to the gate. I saw I ended up seeing more people in front of that gate than I had in the previous forty five days. I don't know where they came from. But these people were showing up in force, and they demanded. They said, we know it was at least one person here, if not more. They thought it was the entire base, honestly. And we want whoever did this. Thank God I could say, well, I'd love to give him to you, but he's not here. I just remember having relief that I could say that.
4: Captain Fields, Private Alexander, and the man we're calling Soldier X all guarded the entrance. As an anguished and formidable crowd grew outside.
5: We were getting intelligence reports that there were some bad actors in that crowd who either had some machine gun of some sort or hand grenades or um, RPGs, but they had something that they were intending to use to harm
6: us. Within a few hours, like there were hundreds of Afghans, pissed Afghans, outside our gate. They are bringing, like, bringing by, shot up by his kids and stuff like that. 10
9: feet away from me, 15 feet away from me, are a crowd of Afghans holding dead children displaying the children, pointing to them, crying, looking so enraged at us. I mean, there's one guy, white beard, and his eyes were just red. There was no other color than red in his eyes. And it became really personal at that time. Like, really, really personal.
6: I'm looking at the crowd, I'm like, they're going to come in and kill us all. They're going to come and kill us all. And I understood it understood their anger. You know, if I was a dad and some jerk off came and there'd be hell to pay, I felt horrible.
4: When Bales attacked, Haji Mohammed Wazir had been spending the night at his brother's house in another town. He recalls the morning after he learned
8: that six of his seven children had been killed. In the morning, we were having tea when one of the people of our village called us and said there was a problem in my house. I said, what's wrong? When they told me, I understood the situation. I thought that either there was a night operation by the Americans or it was bombed. What was
2: the reaction of you and the people of your village after the incident?
8: After the incident, all the people were provoked and their blood boiled. They say that today they did this injustice to Haji Wazir. Tomorrow it will happen to me as well. Why is such cruelty done to us?
7: Why are night military operations carried out against us?
8: Why do they enter our house at night? What are their rights? that an infidel enters a Muslim house and tramples women, children, and babies, and makes them martyrs by shooting them, and then they burn them. Neither God nor the law has considered such an act as valid. Here's Mullah Baran, whose brother was killed by bales. We continued our gathering from the morning until the scholars and elders told us to bury the martyrs. I am very grateful to the people of my place who gathered and demonstrated in front of the Americans and warned the Afghan government that we are attacking the American forces. For both Afghan civilians and
4: American soldiers in the region of Panjwai, life became even more dangerous after March 11, 2012. It started with a tense encounter outside of B.S.P. Bellumby and and it didn't stop. I think the second day,
5: I remember waking up with almost this question of like, was this real or was this a dream? And then I walked outside and I thought, well, okay, yep, this was all real.
9: You know, Bales got taken away in a helicopter, but we had to stay there. And like, we had to essentially, you know, survive. I mean, it wasn't even cleaning up the mess, it was just survive where you are and there's nobody coming. It was bad before, but it got demonstrably worse after Bales was gone. I mean, the entire country of Afghanistan was on the safety stand down for two weeks because of this incident.
5: For 30 days, basically, we couldn't do anything. So in that month after the incident, where we were still on the base, a lot of uh, targeted attacks on the base. You know, some mortar, some, a lot of small arms fire, mostly just harassing fire.
9: The morning prayer that morning was just a jihad. Just come here, kill these people. I basically slept with my rifle
4: for a few weeks, you know. For the 30-odd soldiers inside the VSP, options are limited. Fostering relationships with the locals is an impossibility. Fighting back against the Taliban would only create more problems. The only reason they're still there is to help the Army complete an internal investigation, otherwise known as a 15-6.
5: It was identified obviously very shortly after the incident that um, you know, they needed to do an investigation. And in that time, basically our job was to answer the questions for the 156. Uh there was a I believe it was a one star general doing the fifteen six and basically you just needed to be available for when he would call your name. And so that was our job until the fifteen six was done. And then we were
4: gonna be replaced. The United States knew that the soldiers associated with the Kandahar Massacre would eventually be going home. But on a macro level, America had a bigger problem on its hands. Tensions with the Afghan central government, namely President Hamid Karzai. In
10: 2012, the relationship with the United States and Afghanistan was at an all-time low. And every time Karzai gave an interview, it became more and more evident that the relationship was breaking down with the Obama administration.
4: That's the voice of journalist Yelda Hakim, who was working for the Australian news outlet SBS Dateline in 2012.
10: He talked about the sovereignty of the nation. That was something that he felt quite strongly about. I had quite a sort of a, an intense conversation with Hamid Karzai about you know, sovereignty and the place of the nation, and night raids.
4: Night raids were a point of contention during this period of the Afghan war. Associated Press reporter Kathy Gannon explains.
11: Hamid Karzai and the American administration were at odds. The night raids were relentless. And that was in the middle of the night, a raiding party of American soldiers goes into a village that is supposedly a Taliban village and uh, goes into the homes, um, separates the men, the women. And it was a constant feature of the U.S. strategy in Afghanistan. And it was uh, strongly opposed by Hamid Karzai, and that's because the tribal people themselves were deadly opposed to this.
4: One could argue that Staff Sergeant Bales took the concept of a night raid to its logical, yet horrific extreme. Several days after the incident, Karzai addressed it in a speech, saying, quote, This has been going on for too long. You've heard me before. It is by all means the end of the rope here.
10: It was clear that the Afghan government had lost complete control of the situation. They were no longer masters of their own destiny, if they ever were. But certainly Karzai in 2012 gave off that perception.
4: The U.S. military's reaction to the killings added insult to injury. Karzai wanted Bales to be tried in Afghanistan, where he would be executed, in accordance with Afghan justice. But as we learned earlier, Bales was rushed back home to face trial in America. Kathy Gannon says that was standard operating procedure.
11: Nobody ever thought the Americans would would, uh, uh, abide by Afghan law. I mean, it's not like anybody believes that the Americans are going to let a military person, whatever his prime... Um, stay in the country where he committed it,
4: even so, veteran and Panjway podcast host Curtis Grace argues that America's unilateral decision had serious ramifications for Karzai.
2: He did look weak when we took Bob Bales out of the country within twenty four hours of him doing it and he was, I mean he was gone, like the Afghans never got a chance um, and it made Karzai look really weak. and his brother, in fact, went to Bell and tried to go to Najibn and lost some of his personal guard trying to go there you know, all to try and to be like, no, we are in charge here. This is an Afghan matter. And we just like took the dude out of the country. So I think the Panjui massacre was kind of the nail in the coffin for any chance of the central government to really control Panjui.
10: The Taliban were gaining a lot of ground. The war was intensifying. Obama was trying to find a solution with a partner who was increasingly being backed into a corner and disgruntled. So Karzai's rhetoric was getting more and more intense and the relationship was deteriorating.
4: In late March of 2012, Yalda Hakeem was on assignment in Afghanistan.
10: I was an Afghan-born Western journalist. I had access to the Western press and a platform. But my Afghan heritage meant I had a level of empathy for the country of my birth and for the people and what they were going through.
4: The region was in mourning for the victims of the Kandahar massacre. Even so, nobody seemed to know what had actually happened. As John Henry Brown recalls, the Afghan police weren't able to conduct a proper examination of the crime scene.
3: That area became so dangerous after the incident that uh, I don't think we, the United States, went back there and did a normal investigation. I mean, you know, there was no CSI.
4: Like many reporters at the time, Yelda was frustrated by this lack of concrete information that existed on the case.
10: This whole thing became shrouded in mystery and secrecy virtually as soon as they went and got Bails. He disappeared overnight from the face of the earth. There wasn't any real acknowledgement of what had just taken place. And everything just shut down. And the Afghan partners were working with the... U.S. military to kind of do as they were told, which was hide the witnesses away, don't let the investigators get involved, don't let anyone go out to the field where it happened, defuse, diffuse, diffuse. But that ended up having a detrimental effect because you know, the minute you tell journalists they're not supposed to do something, they make sure they do do it.
4: Yalda had recently developed a rapport with Karzai. She lobbied the Afghan president for access to Alakozai and Najabian, the villages hit by Staff Sergeant Bales.
10: Because he was so furious, and this was such an intense time in the country, he sort of said, allow her to go and give her full access. I knew how this could be told from a very different perspective, less from the perspective of the Afghans being the victims, and more from the perspective of a Soldier, like so many others who may have done multiple rotations, who may have found themselves in a situation where they're far from home and in a situation where PTSD kicks in and there is a sense of justification for what happened.
4: Her goal was simple yet perilous figure out exactly what happened on the night of March 11th, 2012.
10: We had to provide clarity. We were on a fact-finding mission, trying to report or figure out what the truth was. In the last 15 years of reporting from Afghanistan, I've realized nothing is as it seems. It's all very murky. So my whole aim as the only journalist on the ground was to provide some kind of clear timeline. I knew that I had sort of one shot at this and I knew the dangers involved and I was going to give it my absolute all.
4: Yelda quickly learned what Bales and his fellow soldiers already knew. The road to Panjwe was treacherous.
10: I went to the police headquarters in Kandahar, and they said to me, you want to go to Panjwe? Not happening. No way in hell are you going anywhere near Panjwe. If you have a death wish, you go to Panjwe. We don't have approval from the U.S. military. They're not going to support this operation. And we're not willing to lose a single man for this. But we knew we needed to get to the crime scene. And so me, my cameraman, my security, traveled to the road heading into Punchway alongside General Razak in his convoy.
4: General Razak was the head of police in Kandahar. He served as the de facto chaperone of the trip.
10: I remember sitting in the car with Razak and you know he was someone who had all sorts of allegations of atrocities in his name and the treatment of human rights violations. And he was single-handedly holding together Kandahar against it falling to the Taliban and the Americans knew he was an important ally. There I am in the car with him and suddenly the convoy comes under fire. And I'll never forget this. Razak jumps out of this armored vehicle and I've sort of sunk into the, the car seat And he gets into the front seat, picks up his rifle, and just randomly starts shooting into the distance. And I just remember being quite horrified at just the randomness of it. Like, there was someone shooting at our convoy, just got out of the car and started shooting randomly, and then we got back into the car, and it was like, as you were.
4: Once they reached their destination, Yalda and her crew knew they had officially entered a war zone.
10: You know, I was in my late twenties and no real responsibilities in life. And just sort of thinking, well, nothing's going to happen to me. But I remember as we're walking across, I could hear in Pashto and Dari, the two police officers they'd sent with us. I remember them saying to each other, do you think they've really cleared this place of mines? You know, we know the Taliban have got booby traps, be careful.
4: Eyes wide open to the potential risks Yalda and her cameraman forged ahead into the villages.
10: So we go to Punchway and we do all that filming. And then we sort of part ways with the police and, and Razak and those guys' village. I went, filmed inside Punchway, the home. I saw the crime scene. I saw the blood splattered on the walls. You know, we did all of that. And then we came back and then we came back to the police headquarters. We were staying at a different hotel. You know, we said goodbye to them, and I met Mullah Baran at the military compound. His brother was killed, and he had taken in his sister-in-law, with all of her children, into his home.
4: Mullah Baran is one of the Afghans we interviewed. You heard him speak earlier in this episode.
10: And Baran said, you know, you have to come to this certain area. So we're all getting out of the car to go to the village. And he said, no, I'm only taking her. The rest of this like security and your cameraman, they're not coming because it's all women. It's our women. I'm not taking sort of more white men into my home. And it's either you or you don't do this. So I look at my cameraman and he hands me a little handy cam. Take this and you know, are you comfortable to go? And I sort of said, I think so. There's no lights, and we're walking into this neighborhood on the outskirts of Kandahar. I remember looking back, and the car that my team were in was getting further and further and further away. And then I just had a moment where I couldn't see the lights from the car anymore. And I just thought to myself, oh my God, I'm walking into a Taliban trap." And they're going to hold me for ransom. This is the most stupid thing I could do. And so I, I stopped in my tracks and I said to him, I don't want to go any further. And he said to me, why, why? And he looked at me and he realized I totally now was freaking out. And he said, "It's okay, it's gonna be okay.
4: Let's take a moment to realize just how insane this looks. Yalda, a female foreign journalist, going alone into villages that had just recently been the scenes of grisly murders. For an outsider to these tight-knit, patriarchal clans and families, intrusion into their lives can mean death. And here was Yaldo, going above and beyond to shed light on this story.
10: We got to the doors. I just thought, he's gonna open the doors and there's just gonna be a whole heap of, like, men with guns inside and that's it. And when he opened the doors, It was dark and they didn't have any electricity. And I looked into the distance and there was a woman sitting on the ground with multiple children around her, very small children. We're talking, you know, a newborn and, you know, a one-year-old, two-year-old, like very, very small children, a combination of Mullah Baran's kids and her own kids after her husband was killed. And I remember sitting on the ground and turning on my camera and just doing this interview with her. And he was saying to her, tell her what you saw. And the children started describing the boot of a soldier kicking one of the children in the stomach and stomping on on one of the children. And then another child was saying there were multiple people. That was what stayed with me and that I found quite chilling. I was interviewing a little girl and she said to me, I saw many soldiers with lights. She said it was lights coming out of their helmets. I saw many, many soldiers and they came and they killed my father.
4: Coming up
8: on the war within.
10: Giving a family compensation for the loss of life, it's kind of a Band-Aid fix. much
8: I told the Americans that we don't want your money. We just want this person who wronged us to be
3: executed. My job as the prosecutor is to represent the government in the pursuit of justice. I wanted the public to understand that these people were human beings. The well, military was hampered by the inadequacy of the Afghan police.
9: All of the people nearby said, yes, we saw two people here.
3: I want a conviction playing by the rules, no insurmountable mistakes.
2: It's 97% conviction rate in the UCMJ. The closest to that is Nazi Germany. How many times do we
4: see the army throw guys away? All the time. The War Within, the Robert Bales story, is a production of Bungalow Media and Entertainment, Checkpoint Productions, and Mosquito Park Pictures in partnership with iHeart Podcasts. The series was created by executive producers Paul Pulowski and David Sheck. Executive producers for Bungalow Media and Entertainment are Robert Friedman and Mike Powers. The podcast was written and produced by Max Nelson and hosted by me, Mike McGinnis. Editing was done by Anna Hoverman. Sound design and mix by John Gardner. Teddy Gannon was an archival producer. Leila Ahmadzai was an associate producer and Peter Solotaroff was production assistant. Special thanks to Liz Yale Marsh, Nicole Rubin, Marcy Barkin, Zach Burpee, and Mirwais Atal, as well as all of the people who were interviewed for the podcast. Listen and subscribe to The War Within on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.